Welcome to the Sports Science Dudes. I'm your host, Dr. Jose Antonio, with my fearless co-host, Dr. Anthony Ricci. If you're a first-time listener, hit the subscribe button and like this show. Um, today, we have two guests, Drs. Marissa Bello and Dr. Uh, Darren Willoughby. Um, Marissa is a current visiting instructor at the University of Sweet Home, Alabama. That's Leonard Skinner for, the, for all you young people who don't know Leonard Skinner. Um, <laughs> and that's in Birmingham, by the way. She did her undergrad in biology at Brandeis, who, by the way, Marissa, I was also a biology major, so uh, we have something in common. Um, and she also competed in soccer all four years. Uh, she then completed her master's at Rutgers, where her main focus was supplementation and sports performance. While at Rutgers, she worked closely with the athletic department, uh, incorporating athlete monitoring with several teams. Her PhD was completed at Mississippi State University in exercise physiology with a minor in nutrition and her dissertation research focused on optimizing uh, performance and training adaptations, which we will uh, delve into in this show. Now, Dr. Willoughby, he's been around, you know, since the dodo bird. He and I go a long yeah. way back to oh, the American my. Society of Exercise Physiology with our good friend, Tommy Boone. We remember those days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <you got laughs> his, those are crazy times. Yeah. Um, yeah, he got his PhD in exercise physiology with a sub-emphasis in nutritional biochemistry and molecular biology from Texas A&M University. Uh, Dr. Willoughby is a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine, the ISSN, American College of Nutrition, and American Society of Exercise Physiologists. He's also past president of the ISSN. He has also been presented with the Lifetime Achievement Award by the Society, by the Society of Weight Training Injury Specialists, that is wow. SWISS not to be confused with cheese. <laughs> and he has a lot of publications, over 150, and he's considered one of the pioneers and a really good friend of mine. Um, so I want to welcome Dr. Darren Wilby and Dr. Marissa Bello. Thank you for having us. Well, um, today, um, I want this uh, show to focus on one thing, skeletal muscle hypertrophy, which I will uh, start off by saying, uh, uh, Tony, apparently can walk into a gym, take a few deep breaths, and he, he undergoes skeletal muscle hypertrophy. <laughs> Me, on the other hand, I could eat like Those a- Those satellite cells just begin to just <laughs> pop out like crazy, right? His satellite, <laughs> that's true. His satellite cells just, you know, start undergoing- Hey, hey with, with, big, with Big Tony, when he walks into a gym, his satellite cells, cell, uh, cells start popping like, uh, like zets on a, on a teenage boy, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like the way this show is starting. Yeah. <laughs> so let's ask a semi-serious question, and I'm going to direct this to Marissa. Um, in your doctoral dissertation, uh, part of what you covered dealt with uh, repetition and load schemes. Mm -hmm. And my question is this. I mean, powerlifters, they tend to do, you know, higher loads, uh, lower reps, and bodybuilders go through the gamut. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so... One of the unique sort of aspects to what we did was we kind of did, we took the powerlifter approach, right? Where when you're looking at really strength-based high load, you're looking at 85% or more, right? And a lot of the high versus load literature only does 30 versus 80%, right? If we follow NCA, it's 80% is an eight rep max. So you're looking at that, that bottom end of hypertrophy, no matter what. So we want to kind of take it one step further. Let's actually put these guys in a high load group, like six reps or less every single set and you know, we're looking to failure here. So these guys, I give them credit for a nine week training study to come in three days a week. They did 
first sets were maybe six reps, second sets close to four, that last set they're burning out on one or two reps, right? So we really took the, the powerlifting approach. What's unique that we saw was from a practical strength side, high load increased strength across the board. The low load group also increased strength, not to the same degree. Um, when those are hypertrophy, no differences. They all got bigger no matter what. And I think really one of the one of the main drivers in this is every single set was performed to failure, right? So we're talking from a recruitment perspective, from a muscle damage perspective, we have failure occurring in both groups, which probably is why we saw that similar hypertrophy. Darren, comments? In terms of how you train high load, low reps? I can't train low load. I got to train high load. I don't want to be in the gym forever. <laughs> well, you know, it, it sort of begs the question of, you know, I think uh, you, I, you've heard this before. It, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. You right. know, the idea that if you can get hypertrophy with, um, you know, 20 to 30 reps versus hypertrophy with six to 10 reps, why would you waste your time doing an exercise that takes three times as long? Um, so what if you could get it with, you know, 20 to 30 reps? Um, to me, it never made sense, but the literature, and I don't know if you guys remember the literature going back to the 1960s, uh, where uh, I believe the gentleman's name was Richard Berger. He did all these sets and rep schemes going back, you know, 50 years. And then now we see now, today, the idea that, you know, playing around with these rep schemes, it seems like we end up going back to what seems to work practically or pragmatically, and that would be heavier weights. I mean, you, you know, the old bodybuilder, or is it the powerlifter adage, you know, to get, or bodybuilders, I guess, to get big, you gotta lift big. I mean, Darren, did you get big by lifting little and a lot of reps? Mm, no, not at all. Certainly not in the uh, initial stages. And Tony? No, um, you know, I had a short lifting career where I really focused on it, but it was, um, it was pretty heavy, you know, six, eight rep range, um, maybe sometimes even lower, and it didn't do sufficient amount of hypertrophy. It, it, it's a, so then my question to both Darren, Dr. Willby here, and, and Dr. Bell would be, you know, just as we talk about hypertrophy and the varying volumes and load rep ranges, then what, where are we looking in terms of the neural drive, right? Because the initial neural drive would be, wouldn't be there in a lighter repetition or lighter load, but then there must be some type of intense drive in the subsequent loads in it. Either way, it balances out. Would, would, does that make sense? Would that be the case? Yeah. I, yeah. It makes good sense. I th you know, this whole issue of muscle hypertrophy is so incredibly convoluted. In my opinion, it goes way further than simply just sets reps. Um, and that is from the standpoint that, you know, you're talking about <clears throat> heavy load where you're really, really intensifying the neural drive, but you also, in a higher volume approach, you also have the issues of time under tension because their data showing that time under tension, you know, and increasing the amount of time <clears throat> the muscle is contracting, I mean, positively stimulates uh, muscle protein synthesis in that regard, you know, but the other thing is you have to realize is that it's not always simply about muscle protein synthesis. And this is kind of my big hang up on a lot of these acute bout studies that, you know, do one, you know, one bout of resistance exercise and see an increase in muscle protein synthesis, whatever it is, the stimulus is 
nutritionally or whatever, and then began hanging their hat on the fact that, you know, it's going to create all this um, muscle hypertrophy um, um, down the road in regards to simply just if that individual, if that individual were, were training using that particular paradigm, the session in, session out, whether it's coupled with some type of a supplement or whatever the case may be. And the other thing is, is that, you know, we have to consider, Dr. Ricci, I, I, I know you'll understand this, is, um, you have to understand the issue of simply just life. I mean, every day is not the same. It's it's not it's not a it's not absolute absolute blueprint of the day before. I mean, you know, stress levels are different. Did we did, did we recover the same amount from the day before or the last workout for that particular body part? I mean, it, every day, like I said, it's not a blue it's not a blueprint. It's not a photocopy of the previous day or the previous workout. So that being said, you know, it's you know. While I while I feel that there there have, there's a lot to be said for for sets you know for sets reps and and load, again I, I favor more of kind of a a periodized type of approach where you have varying intensity intensities and varying volumes over the course of time, where the muscle is being stimulated either high neural drive or high time under tension. We're trying to find a midline for that so that it's not just you know, again, it's it's not just the same at the same workout time after time after time after time. I mean, just you know, <clears throat> modify as much as possible to try to, for instance, just try to strategize that muscle into <clears throat> into uh, into growth as much as as much as as much as possible. So, got it. What are your thoughts on the need for or the? Um... The utility of going to failure, uh, Marissa. I know because you had, had had mentioned that, and and I know on social media there's a sort of constant back and forth about do you need to go to failure? I mean, bodybuilders have been going to failure since since Joe mm -hmm. Weider's days. Um, and well, I'll let you comment on that because I have I have ideas about whether you need to go to failure. Yeah, I mean, I have tons of people, even like my my age, that are headstrong in bodybuilding right now and they're like they come to me and like do my do my drop sets count do i need to have a drop set after my three sets or whatever and i mean we kind of looked at that right we, we looked at the muscle activation and the recruitment side using this wearable tech with these emg sensors built in and what we saw was similar emg amplitude so from a recruitment perspective we're recruiting the maximum amount that we need for you know for that exercise across between whether it's high load or low load. So from a recruitment side and sort of neural drive, it's very similar between the two. Um, I'd argue that if you're doing high loads, you don't necessarily need, right? Let's, let's say you're doing sets at 85% or sets at 90% and you do a back off, back off drop set to 85%, still to failure. You're still in a high load mm. group, right? You don't need to drop down to 70% to 50% to really get the same stimulus. So I understand where the bodybuilders are coming from. I mean, I've been trying to get big my entire life. Obviously, it's not working. <laughs> but maybe, hey, maybe I'm not training to failure every single time. But I think kind of touching on the, the neural drive and the recruitment, there's a time and place for it. I don't think it needs to be, excuse me, every single set. But I think if you, you have that maximal um, recruitment at some point, then yes, you're looking at sort of optimizing the growth from that, from that perspective. 
So yeah, I, I would I would agree with that um, mm -hmm. from the standpoint that um, you know does it need to be absolute volitional failure? No, not so much. But does you know do it? In my opinion, every every set need, needs to be pushed to a point where the muscle, by the time the set is done, the muscle is under relatively extreme amounts of physiological and biochemical duress. Meaning we're, I mean, we're pushing that we're pushing that muscle and stimulating that muscle, <clears throat> both neurologically and also biochemically. And so, like I said, does that does that have to be from a standpoint that? You get to, you know, you finally get to a point where there's no way that you can finish out that set without somebody, you know, helping you out with some forced reps. No, it, it doesn't. But does it mean that, for instance, somebody's doing a set of 10 with a with a load that they actually could use maybe 20 reps for? I I, um, I would suggest that that um, that that load for for a hypertrophy scheme, that load is not is not enough. Yeah. So the muscle, the muscle needs to be under duress. How much duress? Well, that's hard. That's hard to say, but it definitely needs to be under duress um, with each set, at least in my opinion. No, I mean, I agree with that. I try and tell my students that because as soon as they find out my background, all my students come running to me like, what should my training program look like? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, well, what are you lifting? I'm like when you finish this set, you know, can you do two more reps or can you do 20 more? And like, oh, well, I can do like at least 20 more, but then it's not heavy enough. Yeah. Not for a set of 10. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And Yeah. I was just going to say, that's the thing, particularly probably more with novice lifters is that, you know, say for instance, you say do three sets of 10 and you don't necessarily, as Dr. Bellow just mentioned, if you don't necessarily um, categorize or, or, or quantify or qualify what that means. I mean, they just do 10, but, they could probably do 20 or 25, but they're just, they did their, their 10 reps. And so, um, yeah. So yeah, a little follow-up to both of you, because it's fascinating to me in terms of taking a muscle to failure. Do you think the, it can be impacted by how many compounds we're doing? So, so for an example, Dr. Bell, Dr. D there, if we are, we have a lot of squats going on and we have a lot of deads as part of the program. Does that change? Let me, let me reverse that. Let's say somebody's got a little bit of an injury and they're, they're laying off the compounds a little bit and they're isolating. Do you think then that failure, if you wanted to build that chest might become even more important than if we're not getting the global right uh, drive and the potential benefits of a compound movement would seem to seem, I could be incorrect, still stimulate full body growth better than an isolation movement. So my thought process here is, do those compound movements impact how far to failure we may have to go when isolating a body part? If I wanted to get bigger lats or I wanted to get a bigger chest and I, you know, and I'm doing compounds, does it better influence it? And if I can't do the compounds, should I better take that isolated body part to failure. Does that kind of have a little uh, yeah. sense to it? Yeah. No, I I definitely think that's a I think that's a very intuitive question, and and I would just I would just uh, respond to that from the standpoint that based on the compound, uh, I guess it depends on which specific muscle that you're wanting to target. I mean, so let's say for chest. 
you know, you're talking about, you know, your presses versus, you know, your, you know, your, your, you know, your unit joint movement, like a chest fly or something like mm -hmm. that. But for instance, we know that, you know, like we can compound off um, in a compound movement, say with a, a press, we can work both pecs and delts and triceps and, mm -hmm. you know, and then lower body, you know, obviously a similar type of scenario would come in with, with the uh, muscles in the lower body. So, you know, I, I guess it would depend on, again, what that, what muscle that person was, was actually wanting to target versus, um, specifically targeting that with just, uh, you know, with just a, a single joint exercise, right. you know, like, a you told me a squat or leg press or lunge or something versus a leg extension and right. curl right. or whatever. I mean, you know, right. I mean, you could take it, that further too. I mean, like you can talk about fatiguing the muscle before you get to those isolated movements. I mean, mm -hmm. if that's kind of to Dr. Wilby's point, not, not every day is the same day training, right? right. You can have a day where squats feel great and you can have a day where mm -hmm. squats are heavy and they're not the percentage that you think that they are, yep. right? Maybe you back off that day and you do more of those unit joint isolated exercises. Yeah, you know, I, I would also say that um, that when you talk about the global, and again, in my opinion, not that my opinion counts for anything, but in the globalness of muscle hypertrophy, I mean, I also think it comes from the standpoint of how the muscle is trained, what angles the muscles are trained from. Um, for instance, and in, in you when you talk, start talking about some, um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming right at you, Tony, from the, some some of the really cool stuff that I've seen you post vids on on social media when some of your functional training. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm like that is like a super cool exercise, you know, and, and how that could easily be implemented in as, you know, as a bodybuilding exercise from the standpoint to supplement one's training. Cause I'm like that, that's, that's coming from an angle that we, <clears throat> that, that we don't get and the muscle is not going to be stimulated from when we do a right. typical bench press or an incline press or, you know, or, or shoulder, <clears throat> shoulder presses, whatever the case may be. I mean, that's where I think in a lot of cases, you know, functional type of movements can actually be a very nice adjunct to a training mm -hmm. program, particularly a bodybuilding program, but even, even a powerlifting program, for instance, or, <clears throat> but particularly um, a bodybuilding program from the standpoint that you're just, you're challenging the muscles in, in <clears throat> a, number, a number of different planes and axes. And you're also doing it with some sense of, uh, you know, purposeful intensity and pushing that muscle again uh, to a point where, you know, it's being, it's being highly stressed and it's going to respond. I mean, it's going to respond neurologically. It's going to respond biochemically. There's no way it can't. So, you know, and the other thing is, is that, you know, as, as you guys are well aware, you come, you come at it from a psychological perspective. You're going to go into the gym. You're like, ho-hum, I got another vanilla chest workout today you know i'm gonna do bench press incline press and flies you know it's the same thing i always do you know rather than coming in and just you know um varying the program um so that the the muscle is not used to seeing the same type of approach from and not only that 
we're not used to perceiving it psychologically um, as well. So, you know, again, if we're more alert and we're more motivated in the gym and we're more fired up about our training program, is that not going to, Dr. Ricci, is that not going to impact a higher neural drive for muscle Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, yep. It's just. Exactly. You know, yeah, it's just kind of like, you know, and, and bodybuilders uh, sometimes can be um, in a scenario where they're, you, you know, they're reluctant to change. You know, it's kind of like their diet. You know, they're used to eating the, five, the, the same five or six uh, pieces of food that they eat every day. You know, sometimes their training is very similar to that, you know. But, you know, why not mix it all up and just, just shake it up as much as possible so that you can actually get the, the psychological and the... <clears throat> And the psychological slash neurological and the biochemical and molecular are all just meshing. And so, exactly. again, just having a very, very diverse functional approach, I, I, I think, can do that very well. Are you, are you saying you're sick of chicken breast, broccoli, rice cakes, and oatmeal? Dude, <laughs> dude, I quit eating that stuff years ago. <laughs> you know, I just had lasagna for lunch, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and you know what? It's kind of interesting that you, you say that, Dr. Antonio, because, you know, when I get when I got away from eating like that all the time. And so I kind of started going back to, you know, obviously still not overeating calorie wise and still being somewhat mindful of having, some, you know, somewhat of a clean diet, but, you know, eating stuff that I really I wanted to eat, you know, what the heck. Um, not only did not only did I start feeling better. I also started feeling better up here in terms of my my you know nutrition because it's like oh my god, dry chicken breast again today. <laughs> you know? So now if I want to eat lasagna, if I want to eat ice cream, if I want to eat you know what fried chicken or whatever, I do so. And as as long as I know that I'm falling within my my calorie limits for the day, it's my training's improved, my outlook has improved, my recovery's improved, and so I'm just talking about myself. So you mm. know it, it's. <laughs> Um, you know, but I know that's not quite on the same topic, but nevertheless, it kind of fits, fits along the way. Yep. Marissa probably has chicken breasts in her drawer there. She just doesn't want to <laughs> I have, no, I don't. No, she, I can't eat chicken either. I don't know what it is about it. It gets so bland to me. You know, how I, I put spices and everything. I'm like, can't do it. Not today. Well, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. I'm going with that too. After a while, it's like eating the catches, mint. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's just yeah. chewy and boring. And well, not only so, I, I bet I bet she's got a can of tuna in her, or, or, or the <laughs> hey, tuna. Hey, who invited you to my office? Get out. <laughs> so when she opens oh, it, everybody down the hall know that she's uh she's having lunch. No, I yeah, eat um, lunch with door shuts. <laughs> I have a, uh, I guess this is more of a open-ended question. I remember when I was first exposed. To the concept of periodization as it applies, I guess, to heavy resistance training, it was, this was back in the 80s. I actually took a class from Mike Stone. And you have the, the phases of hypertrophy, strength, power, peak, and all that BS. Um, and I always was struck by the fact that you get a hypertrophy in every phase. So why is one phase caused, called hypertrophy, another called strength, another called power, when in fact, you could actually accomplish all of those <laughs> within the same phase? Um, comments on that, Marissa, let's go to you. 
Yeah, I mean, from a periodization, I've always learned it, I guess, within, I guess, the world of sports, right? You have a strength right. phase when you're in off season, and then you go into, into, I'd argue that instead of having a hypertrophy phase in a season, it'd be more of a, I guess, more titled maintenance phase, if anything. Like, I mean, I, to your point, you're right, like, you're getting hypertrophy regardless, no matter right. what phase that you're in. So why single, single it out in one certain season or phase of periodization? And you just have a lot of time to do that, like, because a lot of sports don't allow for, you don't have six six months off. So I can understand if you have an offensive lineman in football and you say, look, the kid just went from D1 to the pros and he needs another 30, 40 pounds. Right. But it, it, in order, it it takes a year to induce Mm -hmm. a lot of pure hypertrophy. So my point to that is I'm with you all in the sense that, well, training other biomotor qualities, I think it's very genetic, of course. Some people don't put muscle on easy. So independent of where the stimulus is or what part of the periodization model they're in, they may not induce much. But because we don't have that much time to really focus on just adding muscle, utilizing the strength and power protocols and allowing the natural hypertrophy that occurs as a result seems to be most suitable anyway in most cases, no? Yeah, I mean, I think back to like my college days, we had... I think we reported for spring season in end of January, early February. So we had February, March, April. We, we were gone in May. We had three months with exactly. our actual wind coaches. Exactly. But we were gone for the summer and it was, here's your summer packet. Go do it. Hopefully you follow it. Like, right. yeah. I think, yeah, I think you're right. Like you don't get six months with these athletes to really kind of prioritize one phase yeah. of it. Yeah, you know, I certainly would agree with that. Um, but like with any other type of training scenario and the desire for optimum physiological adaptation to arise from that, a lot of it just comes from just being compliant and consistent Mm -hmm. to a program. I mean, a program that sounds scientifically that we know that's going to drive the responses that we want to get from our, from either ourselves or our clients or our our athletes. But nevertheless, it's just, it's just, you know, it's just, uh, it's just being consistent. Yep. Yeah. You could, uh, you could write the best program in the world if someone doesn't follow it. That's right. Exactly. It's just like, that's just like uh, Marissa was saying, you take an athlete, send them home over the summer with a program, but I mean, how, how well do you know, or how much, how, how much do you know that their compliance is going to be what it needs to be? Um, and, or not only that, <laughs> they may show up to the, to the gym to train, but <clears throat> their intensity at sitting around and texting on their phone or being on social media rather than training, you know? So anyway, so, you know, compliance going to the gym and compliance and doing what you need to do when you get there are two different things altogether. That's for sure. Yeah. So that's probably a little bit off topic, but again, it's one of those things where, you know, coach, I mean, you know, I went to the gym routinely, but yeah, but did you, yeah. But what did you actually do when you got there? So, Yeah. I have a question for all three of you. The uh, and this is as it relates to sort of the, the miasma of, of training studies that are out there in the literature. Um, for all of the way all of you train, 
I would guarantee there's not a single study that mimics how you train. In fact, no way. whether you're recreational or world or elite or world, world class, there's not a single training study that mimics how they train. So I guess, I guess one, what's the value of a training study per se when, you know, even if you look at the run, bike, swim sports, the podium sports, and you look at their training plan, you're like, there's not a single study that actually mimics that training plan. So really we're back to the basic principles of training. Um, but really the question is, so, so what's the value of these training programs, whether it's bodybuilding, running, swimming, biking, when in fact, nobody trains that way. Yeah. That's, <laughs> it, it's ironic that you ask that question because, uh, I mean, I've done, I've done quite a number of training studies, um, you know, and being a, being a PI and conducting those things, it's in my, in my opinion, it's like having, uh, having sand poured in your eyes. They're just, they're, they're just so painful to, to have to deal with because, um, and, and that happens in South Florida. We got a lot of sand, so you know, <laughs> and sometimes I'll go back and, and with a good amount of my, my, uh, my research, but some of these studies and all like, why did I do that? What was I thinking? You know, this, that, and the other, but a lot of the training studies, even, even at the design stage, I mean, I'll tell off on myself here. It's like, you know, this is suboptimal for, per se, exactly from what, from Dr. Antonio, what you were asking, but from a, from a, from an experimental design standpoint, thinking about trying to find something that you think that the subjects are going to adhere to and remain compliant on as best as possible mm -hmm. um, is a big one. Um, and the other thing is trying to get is trying to get something that's can be as standardized as closely as possible across however many in that group, 10, 15, 20, right. whatever. Um, because obviously that's what you need to do rather than having, you know, 15 people in a group and they're kind of all doing their, their own thing. Obviously that's not going to help out with control and standardization. So, you know, it's one of those things where I don't know how many times I could sit at design in a study. I'm like, man, I wish, I wish I could set up this, the training program like this or like this or like this, but I know pragmatically it's not, it's not going to work out that way. Yeah. But at the same time, once the study's done, you're like, okay, based on the results, and based on what Dr. Antonio was just saying, you can only infer this much, you know, you'd like to be able to infer this much, but you can only infer just a small amount. And so it's just, uh, yeah. I, I it's don't frustrating. It's very, very, very frustrating, you know, because, you know, you can't get too intuitive, if you will, because what it, it's hard. It, well, in my, in my mind, it's hard to do that without giving up control and standardization within a study. And so it makes it very difficult. So. Dr. Yeah, Bell? I, mean, I, I second that. It's, I remember sitting down and finalizing the methods of my dissertation and it was a back and forth of, okay, what are these guys a going to stick with <laughs> B is whole body? Are they not going to get sick of it? <clears throat> and you know, how do we kind of find this nice standardized middle of the road approach where we know based off of literature on training that 
and the responses that we're expecting to see our hypotheses, you know, this is what we should see with these six exercises that we've chosen. And hey, I give credit. We had no dropouts in my study with nine weeks of three days per week. And these guys crushed it. Yeah, that's unusual. Yeah. Yeah. I told them, I was like, I think we needed 85% adherence and they could miss up to like three days out of 27 total. And I think on average, we had two misses. It was was always, they're college kids. You know, it's, hey, I have an exam tomorrow. I need to go study for this. So I'm like, cool, I get it. Just make sure this is your one miss or your second miss or whatever it was. So I think from from a standardizing approach, from a recruitment approach, it's, you got, you have to kind of find something that will work generically and then tailor it from there. Yeah, and you know, cause to your points, it it almost makes it feel like, well, then what's the value in the study? But there's a lot. And I think just sometimes I could say when training fighters, for example, I think where the research helps me is, all right, let me choose, obviously <coughs> my goal is the least do- dose with the most results. And based upon some of the literature or given exercises, this is probably my best shot, right? Because, you know, the great thing about periodization models is they work when you're doing a periodization model and nothing else, okay? <laughs> oh, they show, here's your, this phase, here's this phase, we got a lot stronger. Yeah, but you weren't grappling, you weren't, you know, running hills, you weren't jumping rope. So what I need and what I would say those type of studies that you've done, all three of you have done and, and, Dr. Bell, you know, starting out and providing us with this good information is I think you make cuts. And what I mean by cuts is, okay, here's what I don't need. Here's what I don't need. Here's what I don't need. And based upon this, these are probably the four or five best applications I can use. And I think there's value there. I really do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And Tony, I, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I I think that's, yeah, that's, that's very good insight because, you know, I think, you know, any researcher wants to or will design a study um, having um, based on a, a, a set or a, a, a minimum criteria of takeaways that regardless of what the outcomes are can still be of impact. Exactly. You know, and so, uh, you know, that way rather than the whole study just being a wash if, you know, if the results don't necessarily come out the way that they hope right. that, that they do. So, you know, um, it's just, uh, yeah. Yeah. Every, yeah. Every study has some value. I mean, you'll yeah. learn a little bit. I mean, it's uh, you're like adding one piece of a puzzle to a puzzle that is exactly. growing. Yes. And, you know, yeah. that's sort of what it is. Um, but yeah. I, I always harken back to, as long as you know the basic principles of training, you should be able to write a training program for anyone um, and don't expect it to look like something that's been published because it never will. You know, you're just, but you got to just ab- apply basic training principles. Now, Marissa, I wanted to ask you a specific question about your, your dissertation. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, you looked at the acute response, I think, of testosterone, maybe some other, mm-hmm. uh, some other factors, maybe growth hormone, I'm not sure, but you found no... Um, the acute, the acute response, um, there were no changes, for instance, in plasma testosterone. Um, so does the acute response in your study or even in other studies, you know, in terms of plasma hormones, does it have any meaning, physiological meaning at all? So, well, we, so we looked at testosterone and cortisol, right? And from a testosterone level, we didn't see significant changes. 
what we actually saw were decreases across the board. And I think Dr. Willoughby can speak more to the receptor side of this. Um, but our best inkling as to why we saw those decreases, even if they're not significant, <laughs> we're looking at receptor uptake, right? So we looked at from basal to immediately post-exercise. On the cortisol side, we saw really no changes, but what that might be driven to, to is because a lot of the low, low group with the higher stress response, they all mainly most of them lifted in the morning and of course all the peaks in the morning. So is it really going up or is it already elevated to begin with? Um, but no, I'm actually interested in Dr. Willoughby's take on this. Um, I guess if we were to redo this study or look at it kind of going down the road, right? Uh, future directions, you know, like looking at angin receptor levels um, as well as testosterone levels over not just an immediate post, but over a 24 hour curve, basically. I think that we would start to see differences in the curves between high versus a low load. Yeah, um, you know, I think the 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 issue when when you're talking about testosterone, particularly lo looking at stressors um, that will induce a testosterone response in regards to its relation to hypertrophy, <laughs> um, you know, these acute or these very short-lived increases in testosterone are really not going to have much impact on muscle hypertrophy um, at all. And so, you know, thus the, thus <laughs> insert <laughs> the, uh, this, you know, the, the, the 6,400 pound elephant uh, in the anabolic steroids, you know, they, they, they do what they do because they increase testosterone levels uh, not acutely, but right. over the over the long haul, um, and so a person will, typically will remain super physiological for quite some time, and so that provides a recency effect to actually increase muscle protein synthesis, but keep it activated for a a long period of time, weeks, you know, um, for the hypertrophic response to actually occur. And so, you know, we've seen, I mean, this it goes back from, you know, in uh, Dr. Antonio and, and, and uh, I know because he and I have talked about this more than once and he, he knows where I'm going with this. <laughs> when you talk about a lot of the work from, say, Dr. Kramer and some of the other ones back where they were seeing these <clears throat> increases in testosterone and growth hormone, uh, you know, during the workout that might stay elevated for about 30 minutes and then they, and then they were gone. Um, and so, uh, you know, quite a bit to be said about that. And even cortisol, you'd see these increases in cortisol. That's just, that's just a, that's just a normal response to the hypothalamal pituitary adrenal axis, the stress axis. Mm -hmm. That's what it does. It's responding to a stressor of, you know, a physical and or psychological stressor in this case was resistance training. And so it increases, but that stress, it, it it's more metabolically because it thinks that it's going to have to mobilize fuel substrate. Um, but that response goes away as well. So all these responses, these short-lived endocrine responses really are meaningless in regards to uh, hypertrophy. Um, Hypercortisolemia is only going to cause 
muscle proteolytic activity and thus perhaps muscle atrophy if it's elevated for, for a relatively long period of time, not several hours, but we're talking about, for instance, days or a couple of weeks or so um, in the case of like of a, you know, a clinical, like a cachexia type of scenario where somebody is, is extremely hypocaloric, for instance. So, you know, again, it's one of these things where even if we saw some increases in androgen receptor upregulation over the course of a few hours, again, that's going to be somewhat contingent upon perhaps what we see with a testosterone response. But when the testosterone response is attenuated, then so, so will be the androgen receptor response. Mm -hmm. So again, it has to do with how long can we elevate testosterone in regards to muscle hypertrophy. We want to elevate it. We want to keep it elevated for quite some time. So, um, yeah, anyway, so I, I didn't mean to ramble on about that, but, you know, that's actually a, a very good question. And there's been quite a bit done about that. And you see that, you still see that quite a bit. So. No, I, I agree. And I think to your point, it's, everyone thinks that testosterone is the end all be all for building muscle. And I think kind of, we've already kind of touched on, right, is, there needs to be context with it. There's other factors with it that people kind of don't think about. And I think kind of you bring up the, the steroids is a great, a great point, which is, you know, you need to go super physiological to see that giant response in it. Well, here, and, and here's the other thing is that, and I, you know, I talk about that when I teach in, when I teach in, in my endocrinology section, my classes is that, you know, we all have this constitutively regulated hormone level within our body of testosterone. So we all we have the the normal the normal range of testosterone, normal clinical range. And so, if you know if you've got if somebody has their normal range is six hundred, um, like say in a, in a in a in a male versus somebody whose normal range is four hundred and fifty, well that's their that may be their their genomic set point, but it doesn't mean that the 600 person is going to be able to acquire more muscle than the 450 uh, nanograms per deciliter person. That again, that's their. But that being said, is that the normal clinical levels of testosterone are there for that individual. The real the only way testosterone is really going to come into play to really drive a major hypertrophic response is that if we can elevate that level fairly significant and keep it elevated, the only way we're going to be able to do that is exogenously with exo exogenous testosterone because the body operates on such a close negative feedback system that it's not going to allow itself normally <coughs> to, to elevate significantly and stay that way. So, the, so and the only way we can do that is not only by increasing the total testosterone, but even more importantly, increasing the free level of testosterone, the bioavailable level of testosterone. And <clears throat> the only way to do that is uh, through uh, PEDs. So, <clears throat> well, I got to ask this question then, and, and I know t I've talked to Tony about this. Um, there are a lot of social media posts about testosterone boosters, right? And as we all know, in order to get an anabolic effect from testosterone, it has to be chronically administered and you have to have either super physiologic or pharmacologic levels for a while. Yes. 
So when you get these little blips with these tea boosters, whether it's Tongat Ali or Fenugreek or whatever the other Fidoja is, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, are you going to get an anabolic response from those tea boosters, Marissa, no. Darren, Tony? No. I'll defer to Dr. Willoughby for this one. <laughs> no. And that and that's because, for instance, and in, in some of the studies that are out there, at least the ones that I'm uh, familiar with, that have shown some significant, uh, or I should say, some improvement, even statistically significant, might show like a twenty percent increase in in their total testosterone, or maybe a, even a, a, a more um, Less subtle response in free, in free testosterone, but nevertheless, a twenty percent. You know, if somebody has a twenty percent increase, and that would be based on these boosters, fairly appreciable. A twenty percent increase is 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 still not going to push them outside of the boundary of the their, of their clinical normal range, and super certainly not anywhere close to being super physiological. Um, so no. And even if they did, Dr. D, it would probably be, again, that would be an acute risk, an acute probably yeah. elevation. It's not going to yeah. be chronic, which is you yeah. just alluded to, which is necessary to induce that hypertrophy. Yeah, it's and that that's and, and that's a that's an outstanding point because you know we're really going to get the the more prolonged response with more um uh Fat-soluble fat uh, versions of, uh, of exogenous <laughs> preparation. You're not going to get these from these herbal preps because that would be kind of like, you know, some type of a aqueous-based preparation that's mm -hmm. uh, that does its thing and runs its course very, very quickly. Well, aren't we all guilty? Maybe Marissa's not guilty, but aren't <laughs> we all guilty? Do you remember when Smilax was huge back oh. in the <laughs> '80s, or I don't even know when? Do you remember Smilax, Marissa? I don't. Oh, yeah. Just to show what a bunch of knuckleheads the three of us were. <laughs> yeah, I remember. It was it. a droplet, sublingual yeah. droplet, and it was supposed to have this crazy anabolic response. Oh, and yeah. it was like, man, this hey, about all, all, all that stuff, Joe, Smilax, uh, ectosterones. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. You know, in, <laughs> insect, uh, whatever. And, oh, <laughs> we were, hey, liquid, it was liquid going, adrenal glands. Yes. <laughs> you guys are also going to remember way, way back when. Particularly, I know with Joey because he and I are basically the same age. Remember the remember the raw glandulars? Oh yes. yes. So you could take the the, the raw orchid, which was basically just ground up bull testicle, and <laughs> because the testicle makes testosterone, you're going to take that and just get jacked and stuff. Absolutely. You know, I was I was probably about nineteen or twenty, and uh, it just kind of really getting into lifting heavy, and it, you know. Oh yeah, I went and gave that a try. I mean, the the tablet the, the tablets were like three inches long. I mean, just trying to get swallow one was just like definitely. oh, the, remember the liver tablets? They were the oh, yeah, same flash thing. drive. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah, same <laughs> they were like thing. swallowing flash drives. Yeah. Oh yeah, I remember, um, yeah. remember all that stuff, Joey. So the good old days of uh, taking shit that doesn't work. Um. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, then you got like you know even more fairly recently. It, the list goes on and on. Deaspartic acid, and I mean you know. Oh yeah, that's right. Deaspartic acid. Yeah. So, yeah, that's it's crazy. Just, yeah, it just. I guess, like, I, guess I don't know if I'm allowed to ask a question. I'm not the host on this show. <laughs> oh, you could ask. So 
with the T boosters, what are your thoughts on like SARMs? Mm. Oh, Darren's got lots of thoughts on SARMs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, yeah, we did, we, we published that um, review article and then mm-hmm. we, that we did that case study. Um, you know, because uh, I remember talking with uh, with Tom and Stephen about this, and they basically yeah. were like, "Tell everyone not to do this." <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's kind of it's kind of interesting because, you know, anecdotally, um, you know, you'd see people that would be, you know, I mean, like when a month's time would be, um, you know, increasing uh, lean mass like via a DEXA, um, pretty pretty impressively, and then their body fat would be going, their fat mass would be going down as well, and but. Once we started doing some stuff and looking at some biochem, some some biochemical data, what we were beginning to see is it is it it was tanking, literally tanking endogenous testosterone levels, and also driving LDL and and suppressing HDL levels quite dramatically as well. So the biochemical impact um, relative to the so-called anabolic impact you know i'm not i'm not sure that would be that would be worth it so it, you know it's again you're talking about something that it's hard to know exactly because it you know it, it, it's not fda cleared so you know having any any um clinical trials um we don't have the data to that but i mean you know there's a little bit of data that from some experimental studies and older and older men Mm-hmm. They kind of we used as a template, but um, yeah, you know, from what we ended up seeing initially from some of the biochemical data, I, it yeah, it, it's it scares me. Yeah, I mean, what, we, what what we were seeing it do, it, it was suppressing the, the testosterone axis, uh, axis, the hypothalamogonadal axis. It was suppressing the axis um, across the, across the board. Um, so, yeah, it, it um, and also calling also causing dyslipidemia as well. So, not a good combination. Mm. Okay. Good yeah, to know. I wasn't aware of that actually. How how yeah. how negative those effects could be. Mm. Yeah. I teach a sports nutrition class, and like we have an entire lecture just on like steroids, pharmacological, ergonomic aids, all that stuff, and. The first question I always get from students is, do you know anything about SARMs? And I, mm-hmm. I always send them to your guys' papers. <laughs> I'm like, you read and, and you determine whether or not you want to take this. I am not telling you to take anything. <laughs> yeah. The best PEDs by far are still androgens and EPO. Nothing comes close to those two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. SARMs, I would uh, probably yeah. stay away from the SARMs. I tell my students, I'm like, I don't, if you do something, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> don't come, don't say, yeah. Dr. Bell told me to take SARMs. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, how I, about I, this? Maybe um, go on, Joey. I'm sorry. No, uh, I was going to ask a, a, a sort of changing tact in terms yeah. of a, a different topic, but if you had a, a question, Tony, no, go ahead. No, move it through, and then it, it may it may even fit in nice. Okay, we have about ten minutes, so um, two questions in terms of the training response vis-a-vis hypertrophy. If you could comment on a sex difference and an age difference, and mm-hmm. make sure, Marissa, you're careful in terms of the age stuff. Because we're kind of getting up there, okay. So you, you need to be clear where, when when does when does skeletal muscle fibers become <laughs> older? Because Darren and I keep saying I think it's ninety when yeah. when skeletal muscle fibers get older, which yeah. is middle okay. age. Yeah, yeah. Okay, ninety's right. middle age now. Okay, got for, it. For, for us, it is. 
So sex difference, age difference. Um, so with I the could... sex difference side, I mean, there's not much on the high versus low load stuff, um, especially not with females. Uh, I think there's maybe four studies that actually look at it. And even then they're not really looking at whole body training, they're looking at basically knee extensor training. So I think the application of that really isn't as good as the male data that we, just, we really have. Um, so I think we definitely need research on the female side. I mean, with basically with anything in science, right? We sure. need data on the female right. side. Um, I think from an age response, I'll be careful how I phrase this here. Um, what I was taught in the next phase and throughout my entire studies was that basically, you know, your bone mineral density, your muscle mass, you peak right, right between 25 to 35, right? And then we see that that decline over age. And I won't tell you guys what percentage because you guys all know, but I don't want to, you guys obviously are ahead of your curve. <laughs> um, and what age does it drop precipitously? I think it's right around 75. You start seeing 15% decreases. So you guys are fine. Okay. Um, but I mean, from a from an age response, right, we see that that loss in muscle mass if you're not doing anything with it, right? right? So it could be, you know, not just necessarily with high versus low load training, but any sort of hypertrophy training, it may not be a, we're looking at muscle like gaining, but we're looking at muscle maintenance really over the course of, of the aging curve. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm turning 30 in a couple of months, so I'm on my decline. I'm fine. <laughs> oh Lord. You're still, oh my God. Lord, you're still my, my students tell me that all the time. They're like, how old are you? Oh, you're getting up. I'm like, I, 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 30. I, I, in I which calendar? Is that Gregorian, I you, Julian, Julian, but I can't even remember that far 30. back. I can't even remember that far back. Exactly. So. Yeah, I don't even And my know. students call me old. So. I was just, just going to just kind of uh, mention on the, the age-related is that not so much on the, um, the, uh, lo the, the load scheme per se, but just in, just in general that comparatively speaking, They've shown that uh, comparing older to younger individuals, both males, females, but un but unfortunately, most obviously the data is is with males more than females. But um, <clears throat> is that relatively speaking? So when you express strength gains relative, uh, relatively, and relative to say. However, it, it, it can be expressed relatively to, to, to uh, body mass is that there's not really much difference in older men and younger men on the ability uh, of older men to be able to increase <clears throat> strength. But when you look at the ability of older men compared to younger men to accrue muscle mass over that same per uh, period of time, then that's not the same. Younger men acqu acquire muscle mass much more greater over the over the course of the training period. But when again, when you ex it's express relative, the the strength gains are not that much different. So that begs the question: Why is that? Um, what's going on relative to the older uh, to the the older man relative to the younger man where younger men are putting on more muscle but they're not but the, the strength gains aren't that much different so it's you know it's got to come it's got to come down to something that's going to have to be more so 
associated with muscle activation in neurological drive that is uh, that would be associated with that. So anyway, and I'm, I'm not sure we know exactly what the mechanism is behind that, but what that does mean is that us older us older farts are still able to uh, enjoy the benefits of resistance training, but not maybe not so much in in a grandiose scale relative to hypertrophy. Although you know, uh, at uh, you know, for somebody that just turned fifty nine, I'm I'm still holding my own okay. So you know, but I mean, according to Joey, you're not middle aged yet. So I go to I go, well, <laughs> that's, that's right. I mean, heck, it's, it, I mean, no way. So we still, uh, no, Joey and I, we're still in the first trimester of our life, right? <laughs> well, all I know is I can still train as hard as when I was young. I just don't recover very well. That's exactly right. I told somebody that like two days ago. Yeah. Well, it, it's the Toby Keith song. You know, we're all as good as we once was, right? Yeah. Or we're only, but uh, only one time we can get it done. <laughs> I ain't as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. So I can do what I ever, what I used to do, and I just can't do it that often. That's all. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, I I can still go and grind, and I can still push push lots lots of uh, of weight around. But I just like Joey said, I I just don't recover. So you know, I have to I have to modify my approach, and 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 so sometimes I'll not go quite as heavy. And I'll do, again, like I said earlier, my, I'll mix up my volumes and, you know, one day I'll, I'll feel pretty good and my joints will feel good. And so, you know, I'm going to go pretty heavy and the next day, no. So I'll drop back on the, on the load and go up more in weights and uh, more in weight and volume. So it kind of all depends. So anyway, I do recall uh, in reference to Marissa, uh, Marissa's age that <laughs> between the ages of 28 and about 34, I could do anything and recover just like that. Mm -hmm. Oh um, no, I think those were the best years. No, no, you are like peak age. This Mar Marissa, you didn't even hit peak, Doctor Marissa. You didn't even hit peak yet. No, didn't even <laughs> hit it yet. But, Man, I am on the struggle bus this year. I had surgery six months ago. I'm not all doing right, all right. <laughs> no. Hey, no, one I'm, quick closing question, if I may, and, and okay. just a just a simple because um, we're running out of time. Um, but I was just curious about this. So you had the volume training, hypertrophy. You had the lower volume, lower load, you know, high load, right? Different rep ranges. Could there be a potential difference in hypertrophy and one with cross-sectional area and the other more volumizing? Uh, is, is that possible? In better words, higher repetition, more glycogen storage, just simply yes or no, the lower, the heavier weights, more cross-sectional area contributing to hypertrophy, or we just don't know. Oh, actually, can I, I paraphrase this question? I know what you're asking. Sure. Is yeah. there a difference in basically myofibrillar hypertrophy, so increases in actin and myosin versus just what's in the cytoplasm? Or the, the sarcoplasm, right. Right, the sarcoplasm, uh, glycogen, mitochondria, et cetera, et cetera. Is we didn't look at that, but I think that'd be something really cool to look into, especially with the population that we had being recreationally trained. Cool. Actually, just one, I, one, one quick thing with that is that uh, Dr. Um, Mike Roberts has actually got some, has, has published some data on that where he's kind of yeah. looking at this thing, what they call kind of a sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, where mm -hmm. he's seeing uh, increases in sarcoplasmic volume, not right. so much related to increases in myofibular volume. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, 
Not, and if they had read that, and that was really know the mechanism, but there's actually there's kind of some data there to kind of suggest what Tony, what you were what you were driving yeah. at. Okay. Cool. Okay. Just a few final thoughts. I need to uh, plug ISSN. Uh, June 15, 16, 17, Fort Lauderdale Beach. Um, come to the conference. It's well, it's on the beach. So even if you don't like <laughs> science, you can hang out on the beach. I expect to see Marissa, Darren. Of course, I wouldn't Tony miss it. All right. <laughs> It'll be a lot of fun to register. Go to ISSN.net. And also, if you like this podcast, uh, hit the like button and subscribe. And I want to thank Darren. I want to thank Marissa. And of course, my fearless co-host, Tony. So, um, hey, this was a great conversation. We really appreciate was. your time. And, thank you for uh, having us. Yeah, we'll catch you at the hey, conference. Hey you, hey, you guys know me. Any chance I get to geek out, I'm all <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, all. Yep, all right. Take care.